Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. In San Francisco, I'm Nathan Fox, and with me, I think in San Francisco, Allison Monahan. Are you are you here, Allison? I am here, and I'm in San Francisco, yes. How long have you been back from Mexico City? I got back at the end of December, beginning of January, so what, four months now? Cool. Um, do you have plans to go back? Actually, I'm going back in a few weeks. Oh, wow, awesome. For the summer, yeah, it should be fun. Awesome. Well, we'll we'll get into that. Um, for listeners who don't know Allison, boy, I, there's just so many things on your bio, Allison. I don't even know where <laughs> to start. You it's know, a little bit of a weird mix. For yeah. Sure. Whenever I talk about you, I always describe you as a hustler, <laughs> which I really mean that as a compliment. I take that as a compliment, actually. You are frighteningly smart and you are a drinking buddy of mine. <laughs> Which is awesome. You probably shouldn't share that. Why? You're not a practicing <laughs> attorney. You can talk about being my drinking buddy all you want. And um, you are a co-host of the Law School Toolbox podcast. Which was started thanks to your inspiration. Ah, thank you very much. And we'll go through a lot of other stuff in your history. But I think the reason why Thinking LSAT listeners should get to know you is because you have a really interesting story of going to law school, practicing law, and then leaving it to do other stuff. You now currently help people who are thinking about law school and in law school and practicing law and leaving law all at the same time. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, more or less. I wouldn't say we do quite so much of the like, I want to get out of the law. There's some other people who are really well qualified and dedicated in that space. Um, but basically what we do is we help people sort of figure out if law school is the right choice for them, although we don't do admissions consulting. So don't email me your resume. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> I do have some friends I can send you to who are very good at that. Yeah. So what we really focus on is basically improving the experience of students in law school and also when they're sitting for the bar exam. And then to a certain extent, kind of in that early career space where you're kind of casting about being like, I don't know if this is working for me. Um, you know, so I guess that's a little bit of leaving the law. But right now, we're really focused mostly on helping students in law school and people who need to pass the bar exam. Cool. Okay. So let's go back. Um, let's go way back. I was looking at your LinkedIn bio earlier today. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's scary. I have and, no idea what's in there. <laughs> yeah, well, um, hopefully you didn't make it up. But I think All verifiable. it looks to me like you were pre-med when you started college at Rice. Is that right? I was. Yeah, it was a strange situation. Um, basically, I had gone to a high school, a residential high school for science and math dorks in North Carolina. Um, so the last two years of high school, I spent at the School of Science and Math, uh, which was a great experience. And my mother really wanted me to be a doctor. That was her dream. And so I kind of went down that path. I thought, you know, I'm good at science. I'm good at math. Why not? I got into this program you're referring to at Rice, which is the Rice-Baylor program, where you're essentially admitted to medical school at the age of 18. Like you have any clue what you should be doing at wow. the age of 18 with your life. And then you're kind of on this path. Like you don't have to take the MCAT. You just show up, you graduate, and you can go straight to med school. And so this seemed reasonable enough. And then I actually hated rice and left. And one of the things I was happy to leave was actually this program. And I went to Chapel Hill for the rest of college. And at some point, my maybe my junior year, I think halfway through the second semester of Orgo, was sort of thinking like, well, you know, I really need to get some like volunteer work or something if I'm going to apply to med school, you know, show some interest, do all the things that you do if you're a hustler. And I thought about the reality of working in a hospital and was just like, I don't like sick people. I don't want to work at a hospital. And so it was this sort of moment of clarity of like, why am I thinking of going to med school? 
I don't actually want to spend my life around people who are sick. As soon as you have those sort of real realizations, I think you basically, you know, you have to choose a different path. But you uh, you didn't wash out, right? You you actually handled the coursework. Because, I mean, so many people start, I think I went to UC Davis and like half of the people that I started with at Davis were pre-med as freshmen. And then everyone washed out. Yeah, no, I mean, I was capable of doing the work. I'd actually done pretty well until midway through second semester of Orgo when I decided not to go to med school and stop studying and got the worst grade that I've ever gotten in my entire life, which I think was like a C or a C minus. Okay. You know, I was like a straight A student. And I was actually really happy about that. I literally didn't study for the second two exams. Um, I remember the night before the final, a friend, a really good friend of mine had to write a Chinese history paper that she didn't feel like doing. And her roommate was studying for the exam I was supposed to be studying for in the same room. And I literally wrote her paper for her instead of studying. <laughs> and I think I got like a D plus on the final. And I was ecstatic because I'd calculated exactly what grade I could get to pass the class. And I think a D was what I could get. So you passed, didn't have to retake it. Um... I passed. I ended up graduating early with literally two extra units. So if I had not passed this class, I would not have been able to graduate. But yeah, I mean, I, I could do the work. I just ultimately, that was not the path I wanted to go down. Yeah. And then... You did something which I find admirable. And I, I think as someone who counsels young people all the time, I'm, I think people are surprised when I say this, but you quit the med school path and you moved on to something else and you would then quit and quit <laughs> and quit other things. And that's something that you and I have in common. Yeah. I think we we're both also very happy we're with quitters. with well we're happy with what we currently do because we quit a bunch of stuff that we weren't happy with. No, I think that's right. I think there's a Seth Godin book about this where he's basically like if you're going to quit, just quit. You know, like make that decision and it you know maybe it's the right decision whether it's a business idea or, you know, a job or a career path whatever it is. Um, and he talks about the dip and he's like, you know, inevitably things get hard and there'll be a point where you're like, gosh, this really sucks. And if you push through that, then you have the capability of becoming, you know, sort of the best in your field. And so you have to kind of recognize, like, am I just kind of burned out and tired or is this really something I don't want to be doing? Yeah. So you moved on from um, the medical school plan. You ended up graduating with a degree in sociology. Right. Well, I was a sociology major, basically, because... Oh, as I, the pre-med program. Yeah. So I'd taken a couple of sociology classes just because I found them interesting. And I think actually I started the first one because I was going to be a math major for like a week. And I signed up for differential equations and realized I'd forgotten calculus. Yeah. So I needed to pick up another class quickly after I dropped that one. Mm -hmm. And so my roommate at the time was taking like an intro to sociology course that met at the same time. And so I went to that and was like, oh, this is actually pretty interesting. I took a couple of like senior level courses the next semester as a freshman because I was kind of bored. And when I got to Chapel Hill, they were like, well, you know, what are you going to major in? And I said, look, what will get me out of here the fastest? And they looked at, they looked at my transcript and like, well, you've already got several like high level sociology classes and that doesn't really require, you know, a whole lot of stuff here. You could just be a sociology major. I was like, great. That sounds good. Let's do that. Cool. So then um, next stop, you are doing a master's in architecture at UC Berkeley. <laughs> yes. Well, I took a year off of college. Well, I took a year off because I graduated early. So basically, I did nothing in LA for a year. I literally like, it was a rude awakening. You know, I just graduated top of my class, like highest honors. I was feeling pretty good about things. I go to try to get my first job and literally like 
I can't get a job. They wouldn't hire me at Enterprise Car Rental because I wasn't like dedicated enough on the personality tests. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, it was bad. So I ended up working retail at Eddie Bauer for a few months over the holidays. Nice. And then got a temp job, uh, which I was really happy to get. Um, and I worked at a couple of different places. My favorite one was actually at Nestle's corporate headquarters. I was in the travel and event planning department. Wow. That was actually an awesome job. And in retrospect, I probably should have just kept that job because they really wanted to hire me. Uh -huh. But instead, I decided to commit to a three-year master's in architecture at Berkeley, which I had never had any real exposure to before. So it was kind of a little insane. Well, you did a thing that young people do a lot, which is dive right into some advanced certification program that you don't know anything about. I imagine you, did you pay for that or did you get a scholarship for that or how that worked? I work? did pay for it, but I mean, at that time, Berkeley was cheap. Okay. It's not like today. I mean, I'm still paying for it and will be paying for it for the next 30 years, but um you know, at least at that point, it wasn't a totally disastrous financial decision the way that I think it could be today. Right. Okay. So you graduate with the architecture degree in 2000. Did you ever, were you ever an architect? No. In fact, I never really intended to practice when I went to graduate school, which people think is a little weird. Um, I guess it is kind of weird. I just really wanted that education. And I think it actually was sort of the most transformative education that I ever had, despite not really practicing. I worked one summer, hated it, was making less money than I made working as a temp two years before. It's a very hard profession. I wasn't, frankly, very good at it. Um, so I got out and decided to become a programmer, which seemed like a reasonable idea in 1999, in the height of the dot-com boom, the first one, but wasn't really necessarily the best plan our most feasible plan by May of 2000 after the NASDAQ had crashed in March. Yeah. And you're a web developer from 2000 through 2003, roughly when, yeah, I mean, I, I did some programming in 1999, 2000 in San Francisco. They were hiring absolutely anyone. I was like, I will have no problem. I have a design background from Berkeley. It doesn't matter that I have no idea what I'm doing. Someone will hire me. Yeah. Well, and you're smart enough. You figured it out. Dirty little secret programming. Not that hard. Right. And you still do that for your own websites, right? Of which you have several. Kind of. Although if I end up having to write code, I say something has gone badly wrong. Okay. So 2003, you are at Columbia working on your JD. Yeah. I made literally a snap decision to go to law school one day at lunch with a bunch of other friends from the company I was working in, which was sinking fast and they were cutting salaries. You know, it was just the writing was on the wall that this was not really a long-term solution to our careers. And, you know, a couple of us, few people went to lunch after this horrible staff meeting. We all had tacos, burritos, like down on Polk Street. And everyone at the table made this sort of like snap decision that was life-changing. And so, <laughs> I mean, literally, I'm not even kidding. It's a crazy story. Don't, don't go to law school based on these sort of things. But no, I mean, and so, you know, it came, people came to me, like one guy was like, I want to be a winemaker. And we're like, oh, okay, project manager to winemaker. So he literally went and, you know, went out and got a second second degree and he's now a winemaker. But for me, it came to me and they were like, well, what are you going to do, you know? And I was like, I'm going to move to New York. And everyone's like, what are you going to do in New York? And I remember thinking like, well, I don't really want to find a job. I'll just go to law school. Wow. And before I knew it, you know, everybody's like, you can't just do that. 
And of course, being me, I'm like, of course I can. Why not? Are you telling me I can't do something? I'm going to do this. Yeah. So I went and signed up for the LSAT, took it a few weeks later. And you know, six months after that or whatever, there I was at orientation or you know, admitted students day in Columbia, kind of going, how did this happen? So my listeners are going to hate you for this part, but I mean, <laughs> they hate me for the same reason. So um, you signed up for the LSAT, took it a few weeks later and got a pretty high score, right? You ended up at Columbia. Yeah, I mean, I got a 170, which I think was really like below my potential, to be honest. But of course it was if you didn't do any prep. Yeah, I'd actually the problem is I never I think I've told you this. I never actually sat down and took a full test. And so even though I was fine at like all the sections, I really did not have the stamina to kind of keep going through after, you know, you get the five or six hours or whatever this takes. I was really tired. I missed a lot in the last section. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, you know, I'd sort of decided if I got anything in the 170s, I wasn't going to take it again. And I called, this is back in the day, called and got my score and I was like, 17. I'm like, great, don't have to take it again. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, all right, good enough. Well, that advice is still pretty solid. I mean, 170, anything, you're already in the 98th percentile at that point or 97th or 98th percentile at that point. And yeah, and at this point, I mean, you know, people weren't applying to law school so much. So, I mean, a few years later, if it had been kind of like the height of applications, it might not have been good enough. But at the time, it was perfectly fine. Okay. So you're at Columbia. You did well enough to be on the law review at Columbia. Which I hated. Yes. <laughs> talk, talk a little bit about that. Talk, what, what did you do on law review? Why did you hate it? Uh, well, I didn't want to join. It's one of those things like, you know, you find yourself on these paths that you're kind of like, well, I'll just sign up and like see what happens. I'll do the writing competition and, you know, hope that I won't make it. So they called me and they were like, you know, congratulations, you're on the law review. And this poor girl was expecting, of course, like, oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. And I was like, huh. Do I like, do I have time to think about it? And she's like, what do you mean? I was like, because I don't really think I want to be on the law review. She's like, well, then why did you apply? I'm like, I don't really know. So we had this really weird conversation that she was definitely not expecting, um, where she's trying to convince me I do want to join the law review. And she's like, well, technically, you do have 24 hours to make a choice. But like, no one's ever exercised that option. (laughs) And most people are really happy. And so we had this conversation. And finally, she was like, you know, think about it like you already applied if you think about it overnight you're not going to turn it down so just go ahead and accept so I can call the next person on my list and I was like you know you're right like I signed up for it I did it I'm not going to say no even if I don't really want to so yeah I'll do it that's like joining a frat or something the pressure thing of like you have to decide right now that's crazy. yeah well i mean you know presumably you've already thought about this before you commit to the writing competition sure yeah well i suppose i, I mean, mean lee and i just actually are releasing a podcast this week you know we're, we have a podcast episode about this situation we're like you know if you're gonna do the writing competition be sure you want to do it otherwise just don't bother it's fine not to but once you're down that path you know you've gone down that path cool um believe it or not some of our thinking lsat listeners continue listening to the thinking lsat podcast (laughs) even after they're in law school because they like hearing um our bullshit i guess but anyway if you are one of our continuing listeners thank you so much and uh you should check out the law school toolbox podcast do they find that uh, i know it's on itunes you can get it in the it's uh, on itunes it's on our website if you go to lawschooltoolbox.com slash podcast there's a uh you can get all the episodes okay and you have 40 something of those episodes now uh we are up over, over 40 at this point when's my episode coming out well, yours was supposed to come out like a week ago, but unfortunately our assistant prepped the wrong one. <laughs> so uh, yeah. you're going to be out very soon. We have a couple of time sensitive things on, for example, the law review write on competition or how to not have a complete implosion on your final exams. Perfect. perfect. So you got bumped. Sorry. You were supposed to be two weeks ago. 
Oh, that's fine. I'm evergreen content. Exactly. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. So you are on Law Review and then you hate it. They work your ass off on Law Review. Yeah, it's they? just like, I felt like it was just so stupid. I mean, you go in and, you know, different schools do it different ways. Some of them I think are a little more humane. But here it was just like you went in, you had to do like three assignments a week. And these assignments might take you like, you know, five hours each. Jesus. Tuesday. Yeah. And it was just like, you'd get this like tiny little snippet of an article. It wasn't like you were doing anything substantive. You'd get say five pages of an article and you have to go track down all these citations <sighs> and like in the physical hard copies, like at the time, hopefully oh, yeah. they've changed this, but like at the time you literally had to like go to the book and find this case or like, go to the book and find this statue. So you're by yourself, like in the bowels of this libraries all over campus, like all over the city. In some cases in New York, you might have to go get a book at like some other library. I mean, it was completely insane. And it's just like tedious and boring and stupid. And I hated it. That's pretty much how I feel about the entirety of law school. Yeah. I mean, in a way it's actually really good preparation for working, you know, in a law firm or whatever, because you are doing the stuff that's like tedious and boring that no one else wants to do for your first several years, which is of course why firms love people who are on law review, because it shows that you're willing to put up with that. You you can do the tedious, boring, stupid stuff and, and good at it. And right. Like, you know, and you're capable of like getting every single one of those citations perfect and you will stay up if you have to, to do that. And by getting those citations perfect, I mean, that's like actually the super technical blue booking bullshit oh, yeah. Right? yeah like i didn't i mean i did not understand the blue book uh, <laughs> when i started law review i mean that is the one thing you really do get out of it is it becomes second nature but then you become an insane person because like you can recognize for example like a comma or a period that is italicized when it should not be yeah i always say that like a punchline that you can tell the difference between a, a period and an italicized period but that's that's not a joke it's not a joke. I can. I mean, you can't necessarily do it in isolation, yeah. but I mean, I was having a Twitter like conversation with a friend of mine who was on the law review the other day about this, and we're like, "Is made us insane people? Like, this is not normal. This is not something normal people worry about." Ugh, that is not. Hey, what's your Twitter handle? While you oh, I'm a girl's guide to LS. But we also have law school tools, which might be easier. But uh, that's my personal one. Girl's Guide to LS is Allison. Because I also run the Girl's Guide to Law School, which I don't think we've mentioned. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we will we will get there. We're about to get there, but you have to quit a few other things first. So. <laughs> yeah, so I hated Law Review. And basically, the second uh, my second year, instead of running for the board, which is kind of like the next obvious step, that was actually, that was one of the things I was proud about in law school is I really set my foot down and just like, I do not want to do this. And like, you know, I was being recruited pretty heavily by people like, are you sure? You know, we might be able to give you a really plumb position. And I was like, no, I actually don't care i don't want to do this and so i said no and they're like you're destroying your clerkship prospects you know you'll never get a clerkship and i'm like i don't even think this makes sense of course i will if i really want to so i became the um alumni liaison which was awesome because all i had to do was plan one fancy banquet at the end of the year and put out a couple of newsletters okay cool social director no, actually, social chair was hotly contested, <laughs> and um, I was second in line for the social chair, so I got to be alumni liaison instead. Oh, wow. There were, I wasn't the only person who hated doing the actual work of law review. Oh, I can't imagine you would be the only person that hated it. There's kind of a split. There were like the people who were really gunning for the board, and they're the people who are really gunning for social chair. Right. <laughs> right. Makes sense. Okay, so uh, you graduate in 2006, and next stop, you are in a clerkship. 
Yeah, so I got a clerkship, which was awesome. I highly recommend that experience. Um, I mean, partly that was because the job I had the summer before at the law firm was a total mess, and there was no way that I would have gone back there, and they hated me too. Okay. So yeah, I like, really needed to get a clerkship, and that worked out fine. I worked for a fantastic judge. It was a great experience. It was a federal uh, district court judge in Boston who's awesome. Is that judge still still on the bench? Yeah, he is. He's uh, He just took senior status, but he's still there. Okay, cool. And that was for just uh, one year? Is that like a defined term sort of a thing? Yeah, mostly clerkships are for one year. Occasionally they're two years. Some people do two. Some people do like a district court and an appellate court. Again, like I was getting lots of pressure from the school and from professors to apply for appellate clerkships because they're more prestigious. And again, I just sort of, you know, finally was like getting enough of a spine to be like, no, I don't want to do that. Like the experience I'm interested in having is working on a district court actually seeing like what it's like to go to trial because you don't see any of that in law school. And I'm like, and I don't want to be an appellate like clerk. I just don't want to do it. Getting a spine. That's an interesting thing I never would have thought about. I mean, especially with you. I guess I've only known you after you got your spine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, do you think that that's a difference maybe between men and women in law school? I'm not so sure. I think there's just a lot of pressure to like take a certain path in general in For law everybody. school. For everybody. Okay. For everybody. I mean, in some ways, I think there may actually be more pressure on men because they're supposed to be like fitting into the certain role and, you know, they're getting these plum offerings, whereas women, it's kind of like, oh, you guys are sort of incompetent anyway. So just like, whatever, we don't care that much. But yeah, I think, you know, I think part of it's the people who who go to law school tend to be these sort of like very perfectionist, high achieving people, which often comes back to having like a narcissistic parent. <laughs> um, okay. Who, you know, sort of value, valued the person, not for so much like their inherent value, but just, you know, you must be a high achiever. You must get straight A's or you don't, you know, I'm not going to love you anymore or whatever. And so these people get in law school and suddenly, you know, it's all about trying to please the professor or whatever. And then they start competing on these very, you know, sort of very competitive curve-based sort of grades. And suddenly it's like, well, I'm not, you know, I have to get an A or I'm a terrible person. And that's just ridiculous. <laughs> you know? But I mean, you're not saying people consciously think this, but I think there's a lot of that sort of thing going on of like, I have to show that I have value by like these external markers. Okay. So then you just do whatever the people are telling you to do. Yeah. I mean, suddenly you find yourself and you know, people find themselves in these scenarios where they came to law school, for example, to do public interest work. This was like a big one at Columbia, not realizing if they want to do public interest work, they should go to NYU if they want to be in New York City. So anyway, they come to Columbia, you know, they're sold this bill of goods about, oh, it's so great. You know, we'll help you get this career you want. And then a year later, almost to a person, they find themselves in a suit, like interviewing for big law jobs. Right. Right. Of course. Uh, that happens, I think, at most law schools. There's just a pressure. If you do well, then you just immediately go to these big law interviews. Well, and the pressure is enormous. You know, I had friends who were, you know, were totally torn up about this. And and in the end, they get sucked into this like, well, and the schools, frankly, are telling them this, you know, just try it out, you know, just see how it goes. Like, just do the interviews. You can always say no to the job. It's like, who's going to turn down a job that pays them $3,000 a week as a student when they have massive loan debt? No one. Yeah, of course, that doesn't happen so much uh, <laughs> these days, but you were still in the in the kind of go-go years while you were in law school, right? Well, but I think even, at, I mean, at school, you know, these top schools, I think pretty much anyone who wants a summer job can still get one. Mm, okay. I thought that that had been sliced down a, a little maybe, bit. Maybe a little bit, but 
I mean, you know, these are people who are just because they want to do public interest doesn't mean they're getting bad grades. You know, these are people who are doing well. Yeah. But it's like, you know, and they're right. Like once you interview, you basically made that choice that you're going to take a job if it's offered. Well, I mean, the crushing debt is a huge factor, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the average debt coming out of law school is just literally unbelievable at this point. Yeah, I I agree with that. Okay, so you are a clerk. What did you like so much about the clerkship? Oh, well, clerking is really interesting. For me, like, I like this stuff where it's kind of like real life. I mean, for me, the interesting part of the law is like, you know, it's people, it's their stories, it's all this crazy stuff that happens in the real world. And how do we resolve it? You know, so when you're a clerk in a trial court, like you're sitting in court and you're hearing all these stories. I mean, and federal courts are really interesting because you've got all different types of cases. You know, we had criminal stuff. We had like a trial on marijuana distribution. We had a sexual harassment case and retaliation, you know, all this stuff. And you're just like, I mean, it's fascinating. You know, the whole like jury dynamic is really interesting. You see like good lawyers, you see bad lawyers. And, you know, you get to kind of be the arbitrator of like, oh, yeah, this is what I think we should do. I mean, obviously, the judge makes the final call, but you're really there to sort of provide like an informed opinion about what he should do. Okay, you're there through uh, or into 2007. And then your next stop is uh, big law. Yeah. So um, I've decided to come back to San Francisco uh, instead of taking a job in New York. And I'd actually had a patent case come across my desk when I was clerking, which I found really interesting. I remember having the code to Google Earth on my desk. And because I was a programmer, I actually understood it, um, you know, more or less. And so, you know, I mean, patent litigation was booming, is still booming, um, particularly in the Bay Area. So it was a really interesting area to be in. I mean, I did, yeah, I did like two, two and a half years, three years, something like that of basically software patent litigation. Okay. And what was that life like? Well, the work itself was really interesting. And then the lifestyle is absolutely horrific. Horrific how? Well, you're just working like basically all the time. Like what does that mean in real life? Well, the thing for me, like even more than the hours, I mean, God, I can't even tell you like, what I would bill in a year. Definitely basically had to be be over 2000 hours a year just to get a bonus, which is basically 40 hours a week billable, which doesn't sound that much if you're kind of uninitiated, but you have to realize you have a lot of stuff that's not billable. And also those hours after, you know, 40 per week are the ones that really start destroying your life. It's one thing to work 40 hours a week. It's another thing to work 60 hours a week. I mean, if you went to trial, you were literally working like 300 plus hours in a month easily. which is literally get up, start working, go to bed, sleep, maybe five hours, get up, start working for, you know, six weeks. You working in the office? You working from home? Oh, no. Basically, like you did not work from home. You're either working in the office or out of a hotel room, out of like either a hotel room or um, local council's office. If you're, I mean, like I, I had a trial in Delaware. So I was living in a hotel in Delaware for like a month. Okay. So it just kind of destroys your life. I mean, it's not, you can't have a normal life at that point. And for me, even more than just like the actual hours was this idea that they really owned your time and could just basically make you work whenever they wanted to. Yeah. And you're working in a suit, right? No. Oh, you're not working in a suit. No. I mean, a a few places in New York, maybe you have a suit. Most places are business casual. Actually, the firm I worked at 
was proud of the fact that you could wear jeans and they gave you flip-flops your first day. Oh, nice, nice. But, you know, as these things go, it was like, it was less annoying than a lot of them. Well, that at least cuts down on your work day, right? Because you don't have to get all suited up before, you can just roll in. No, you could, like, if you dressed up, people were suspicious because they thought you were interviewing for <laughs> Wow, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, nobody was wearing, like, makeup or anything. I mean, it was almost the opposite. It was like you basically had to dress down. Okay, cool. So that's... That's a little different culture there from... Yeah, I mean, it varies a lot in like different firms. Some firms still have, even in San Francisco, you know, the expectation that you look nice. And I think that, you know, like I think Cravath in New York, for example, like still makes you wear a suit every day, which is crazy. But I mean, New York in general is more dressed up. Okay. You're, uh, you're working Saturdays? You're working Sundays? Um, I mean, it really varied. Oftentimes you didn't, I mean, that was the one time you could do some work from home. So, you know, as a, so nice, you know, you can work from home for like four hours on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. I mean, unless you're going to trial or something, typically people would not necessarily be required to go to the office on the weekends, but I think most people did at least some work. Wow. Okay. So you are happy doing that in 2007, 2008 <laughs> or no? Cause you stayed there for a while. Yeah. I, mean, I stayed there for a while. Well, I mean, you know, like I said, I didn't actually mind the work. The work was pretty interesting. Um, I liked some of the people I worked with a lot. I disliked some of them. I mean, I wouldn't say I was like abjectly miserable, but like the judge I worked for said, he's like, you know, something wrong with working at a firm for a while. Like it's perfectly valuable. Just make sure you can leave when the time comes that you want to leave. Okay. And that time comes in 2010. Yeah, so I actually, at kind of the end of late 2009, this case that I, I had been sort of working on slash running for a couple of years, which was a very small patent case, like, you know, it was one of those piddly ones that they're just like, just put an associate on it, you know, have her figure out what we should do. Unbelievably, it like actually looked like it was going to go to trial, which very rarely happens. And so that case literally settled, I think, like the day before we were getting ready to get on the plane to fly to Delaware to have this like insane trial that should never have happened. So then I had a few months to kind of sit around and think about whether this was really what I wanted to be doing. I'd already billed basically sufficient hours for the whole year by October. Okay. So I basically just didn't do any work for a while. And I had a few weeks to sit around my office and I went through the life of every partner that I knew, either at this firm or at other firms and said, you know, do I want this life? Like, would I trade places with them? And the answer in every case was no. And at that point, it's like, well, then what am I doing here? You know, this is not, this is the path I'm on. This is not where I want to end up. So I need to get out. Cool. So you cut ties. Are you, I mean, not like you burned the bridges, but you left. Yeah, I quit. <laughs> awesome. How, what was that like? How, how'd you do that? It was fun. I mean, it was like, you know, it's a, people always get really worked up. I had various friends. I had to like counsel through like how you quit. Um, people get really worked up about this. I mean, the reality is the law firms expect people to quit. For me, I basically, it's always hard to like find that one day where you're going to do it because, you know, I had kind of decided, okay, I'm going to quit, but I'm going to wait until January and get my bonus. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of like hanging out, you know, and then I had this like sidewalk garden project that a friend of mine designed for me and that turned out to be really expensive. So then it's like, oh, I'll work another couple of weeks and pay for that. So there are all these things that can like lead you not to quit. Um, so finally, I think they forced my hand because there was some big like training program that only happened every couple of weeks or a couple of years and that I was going to supposed to go to like based on my seniority 
And so, you know, they started pressuring me into like, when are you booking your flights? Have you booked your hotel? Uh, and at a certain point, I was just like, okay, I can't book. Like, it would be really rude to like book and cancel the flight when I know I'm leaving. So that was really what, that was why quiet had to be that day that I was just like, I can't book this flight. So what'd you do? Go walk into your boss's office and say, hey, I need to talk or write a letter or what? No, no. I went, I went to like the boss that I worked for who was awesome. Like, you know, she's great. Um, we were friends and I was pretty much like, this was, you know, like 2000, this is the middle of the recession. I was like, do you think there's any possibility I could get laid off? And she's like, why would we lay you off? I was like, I don't know. You know, like lots of people are probably getting laid off. Like, she's like, we wouldn't do that. Like, you're awesome. I'm like, there's really no way. Like, you can't get me laid off. And she kind of looks at me and she's like, no, why? And I'm like, okay, then I have to quit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she wasn't surprised. Like, she'd seen it coming. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's subtle little things. I mean, in- well, subtle things like not billing for three months, uh. like <laughs> <laughs> kind of a big sign in a law firm that you're not that like, dedicated to the cause. <laughs> yeah. So you quit in what part of 2010? It was like the beginning. Beginning the- in 2010. Okay. Yeah, I think this was January, February, something like that. What'd you do for the rest of that year? Well, basically, you know, I had my story when I left about I'm going to start my own practice. I'm going to work on this project, which became the Girl's Guide to Law School, which I kind of started researching in law school. But honestly, like I ended up basically doing pretty much nothing for a while, which really people found very disturbing. Um, You know, all of your friends are kind of like, so what do you do all day? I was like, yeah, it's kind of awesome. Like I get up and I ask myself, like, what do I feel like doing today? And then I do that. Nice. Just like, wow, that is so weird. Like, how do you fill your time? You know, I mean, basically for me, it was like I reconnected with a bunch of friends. You know, some of them had like two kids and I lived in San Francisco. I'd never met the first child because I was working all the time. <laughs> you know, like I went on dates because I had this like crazy boyfriend at the time, you know, who I broke up with after not being in the law firm all the time and really realizing, yeah, this is not a great relationship. Okay. You know, this is like you basically put aside the rest of your life to really commit to doing that work. And a lot of stuff falls by the wayside. Wow. Okay. So you, you get your bearings, you kind of reboot your life. And then it's just like a flurry of creative projects from then all kind of um, law related. Yeah. Well, basically what happened is so for a while I continued after I left the firm, um, I continued this kind of like overachieving, like type A thing. Like I signed up for a triathlon and like, I'm not sporty at all. Like, there's no way I was going to, like, you know, be at, like, the top of this triathlon list. Not that it even mattered because it was, like, this all-women's, like, starter triathlon. You know, so I've got my spreadsheets and I've got all the stuff and I'm, like, making myself go to the gym and blah, blah, blah. All this insane stuff. And I had, like, this crazy Burning Man project I was working on that was really ambitious that, like, I was doing basically alone. And so things actually kind of, because it's a very San Francisco story, things kind of came to a head, actually, at Burning Man in, like, September of that year where I was, like, freaking out like just stressed out and like so stressed out about this project and like all my friends are ready to kill me and finally one of my best friends in the world was like you cannot live like this you know like you have to stop and I was like what are you talking about this is just how I am and he's like you can't live your life this way like you quit this like high pressure job and now you've created all this pressure about something totally stupid that no one cares about like you have to stop so we like fought about it for a year, you know, several days, like these huge arguments. And eventually I was like, oh my God, you're totally right. So I came back from that and I literally, I called up my life coach at the time who was like supposed to be helping me write this book. And she's like, okay, how was your vacation? Like you're ready for some deliverables. And I was like, no, I'm just, I'm not going to do this for a while. She's like, 
like, what do you mean? Like, you're going on vacation? You were just on vacation. I was like, no, no, I'm just going to, I'm stopping. She's like, you're stopping what? I'm like, I'm stopping everything. <laughs> you know, in fairness, she did recover quickly and was kind of like, okay, have you read Eat, Pray, Love? And I'm like, I'm not having an Eat, Pray, Love moment. It's <laughs> like, I kind of think you might be, actually. Um, and years later, I read the book. It was actually a fantastic book. I, At the time, I was not willing to sit down and read Eat, Pray, Love, but I probably should have. But it was this moment of just like, what am I doing? You know, like, I like this is crazy. Like, I can't live this way. And so, you know, I literally did nothing for for like two months, like I didn't work at all. And then kind of came back to these projects with a different eye where it was really more, it wasn't like I have to do this to like be a high achieving or whatever. It was more like, what can I do to be helpful? You know, what do I know that like, I wish I had known in law school that I can share with people. And when you, you know, when you come at it from that perspective and more of a sort of creative, like, oh, it would be kind of fun to like launch a website, you know, it'd be fun to design that or like have someone design it for you. I think things just flow in a different way. Your first project then, or at least on LinkedIn, it looks like the next thing was Girl's Guide to Law School. Yeah. And so that actually was an idea I'd had my third year of law school because I just really didn't enjoy law school. And I thought it was like more unpleasant than it really needed to be. So that was kind of the project of, oh, you know, what do I wish that someone had told me like before I started or when I was a 1L? It was also the whole experience was more gendered than I expected it to be. That's a whole other topic. Yeah, so I had all this research I'd done in law school, and I was going to write this book. And I'd actually written part of it you know, when I was clerking, and then I was like, after I quit, I was like, oh, I have to get an agent and all this stuff. And finally, I was like, you know, I should just write the book. And so I started, realized it was going to take another 18 months of sitting at my kitchen table. And then that's when I decided to launch the website, which I didn't really think anyone would read, even though I'd done a bunch of sort of search engine optimization techniques that I knew from programming and that sort of thing. And I launched it in, I think, like September of maybe 2011. Went to Mexico to like some rural village. I was totally off the grid thinking like, oh, you know, nobody's going to be paying any attention to this new website I just put up. And a few days later, I went into an internet cafe and I had emails from people who'd read the site and were like writing me their entire life story and asking for advice. And it was just this moment of like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, there's definitely like interest here, but like, this is not what I was expecting. Wow. So that is still alive and well. It is alive and well. I mean, to be honest, I haven't really written a whole lot in the past, oh, I don't know, year or so. But there are plans to have other people writing who will be more interesting than me anyway. I, I see. You mentioned a second ago that you thought law school was gendered. Um, it's interesting because law school is now majority women and um, increasingly women. Yeah, definitely. Numbers are right now up for the 2015-2016 cycle. Applicants are up and um, they're up dramatically in, in women, even though women are already the majority. Yeah, I think in a lot of schools they are. Yeah. So what? What? Uh, what how was it gendered to you? Well, I mean, for one thing, you statistically you don't see women doing as well as you would expect. You know, these are people who are very high achieving. They have high LSATs. They have high undergraduate G GPAs. You know, they've been very successful as undergraduates, and they come to law school, and suddenly, you know, they're not getting 
the highest grades. They're not getting like the plum jobs or not getting the prestigious clerkships. Uh, they're not on law review as, as frequently. You know, Miss JD does a study on women in law reviews and consistently across the country, they find that, you know, they're underrepresented. For me, I mean, I remember like being on all these forums kind of the summer before law school and just people saying all these horrific, like totally misogynistic things. And at the time you're like, oh, you know, these are probably just like trolls on the internet. These aren't real people. And then you sit in class and you watch people like in your class typing on these forums and saying these horribly misogynistic things. And it's just, just like, oh my God, are you kidding me? And I mean, law firms are notorious like bastions of sexual harassment. I mean, I could tell you all kinds of stories about that. Um, I was just on a panel recently about women talking about their experiences with sexual harassment in law firms. And, you know, everybody in the room was kind of nodding along like, yep, that totally happens in my firm too. Mm. So it's just, you know, it's this crazy thing where you're like, this should not be happening. Okay, so you uh, you mentioned Ms. JD. You've been writing there since about 2012. I'm not sure if you're still doing that. Or not, not really. I mean, it was like a one-year thing. I did some writing for them. But that's a great organization if you have women who are listening to this and are thinking about law school and want to get kind of involved in the women in law community. I think they have some pre-law programs and definitely in-law school stuff that's worth checking out. Okay, so Girls Guide to Law School and Ms. JD. Then in 2012, you launched two more websites. <laughs> yeah. So basically, I met my now business partner, Lee, who you know. Yeah. Uh, Lee and I met on Twitter completely randomly. I was, you know, tweeting with stuff for the Girls Guide, and she was tweeting about her bar tutoring business. And she sent me a link that was kind of like, oh, you know, you might find this interesting. And it turned out she lived in San Francisco. So I invited her for coffee. We had a great time. A few months later, we had lunch together. And by the end of lunch, we had decided to start a business. Okay. And that is what? So that's what became the law school toolbox and okay. the bar exam toolbox. And so basically that took Lee, at the time Lee was an adjunct professor doing kind of academic support services, bar tutoring, that kind of thing at a couple of schools in the Bay Area and also privately. Um, and so we took sort of my... Uh, technical know-how and savvy and her actual teaching experience and kind of combine those. And now we have online courses and one-on-one -on -one tutoring for people who are in law school or who are starting law school. We have our Start Law School Write program, which is an online course with some personal feedback. Uh, and then also people who have struggled on the bar exam. Okay. And is that the bulk of what you're doing now? That is the bulk of what we're doing. We had this crazy idea for a while. In fact, three years ago today, Facebook has informed me this morning, we actually had our first career conference, which really grew out of a frustration with what other people in the space were doing and the kind of advice they were giving that seemed really antiquated and out of date. And we're like, we could do a better job. Let's have our own conference. So we had a conference called Catapult for two years, and that kind of grew into a career-related website which is now essentially dormant because we haven't decided what to do with it and don't have time to focus on it. So that's trebuchet legal if anyone wants to check it out, which is going to be rebranded if we ever get around to it because we have a better trademark now. Okay, cool. And then you started the podcast. Uh, I guess you must have done started that late last year, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think our first month was like maybe September. Okay. Yeah, so that's awesome. It's been really, that's been a fun experience. Lee and I basically just talk to each other most of the time. Sometimes we have guests like you. Yeah. But, you know, talking about a whole range of stuff, um, everything from like the really nitty gritty of, you know, taking a law school exam. We even have one episode where we actually take an exam live on the air. So that's kind of fun, you know, just to give people sort of a sense of, I'm pretty good if you're a pre-law and like you've never even seen a law school exam, something like that might be fun to tune into just so you kind of have a sense of what you're looking for. Cool. 
Um, okay, so I think we're almost ready to wrap up. You sound busy, by the way. I know you told your life coach <laughs> that you were slowing down, but that does not sound like slowing down to me. No, well, I mean, yeah, that was way back in the day. She's no longer even life coaching. That's how long ago it was. No, we're super busy right now. Like the last few weeks have just been totally insane. Yeah, with law school exams coming up. Exams, the bar, some bar results are coming out. Like we're trying to redo the back end of all of our courses. We've got this free Start Law School Right webinar series. Well, it was a webinar series until the webinar melted down on try one last week. So now it's a workshop, you know, so it's just been a lot. Well, (laughs) (laughs) crazy. Why don't you talk a little bit about living in Mexico? Sure. And then I want to talk about an article you wrote for LinkedIn about, are you willing to look stupid to learn? (laughs) Certainly. Yeah. Well, last, um, I guess last April, I was in Mexico with a friend of mine who runs a bean company and he'd taken a few people to like visit his bean farmers out in like the middle of nowhere in rural Mexico. These guys are like, you know, total salt of the earth, like amazing people who are farming, you know, with donkeys and no water and no fertilizer and nothing. This sounds like a setup for the world's most racist joke, by the way. Yeah, no, exactly. But it's real. You're on a bean farm. We're on a bean farm. Um, So I was there for like a week and mentioned at some point, like, oh, I really liked Mexico City where we'd flown into. Um, Wouldn't mind spending some time here. And so, you know, my friend at some point is like, hey, were you serious about that? Like, I have a friend who wants to rent her apartment for the whole summer. Do you want to take it? And I talked to this woman. She's like, turned out we met like three years earlier randomly. And yeah, so I basically decided on a whim that I was going to move to Mexico City for the summer because our business is virtual, so I can sort of work from wherever. Yeah, so I did that, and I liked it. I stayed for a while, and now I'm going back this summer. Awesome. How long do you think you'll be there for the whole summer? Yeah, the plan right now is four months. Okay. Why summer? Partly because it's just easier to rent my space in San Francisco for the summer, and partly because I came back largely to go skiing. Oh, I see. (laughs) It's a rough life, Nathan. (laughs) No, yeah, that sounds tough. How many days did you ski this year? Probably like approaching 20, I think. Wow, cool. Where do you go mostly? Well, I have like a rental, like a bunch of friends who have a ski cabin share right at the end of the road to Squaw. So, you know, everybody's got passes at Squaw and Alpine and in Tahoe. And yeah, if you go up during, that's the great thing about being able to work from anywhere is I can work from the ski cabin and ski in the morning. It's no big deal. Yeah, that's uh, a lot like my life, too. Exactly. Highly recommend it. God bless the internet. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about, you know, becoming a lawyer, consider solo practice so that you can do what you want. Yeah. So is that like, I would always say the same thing to people. How realistic is that? Well, I think it's realistic. I think it's challenging. It's one of those things where I think, you know, depending, well, partly depends on what other options people have. Like, obviously, if you start a solo practice straight out of law school and you have the option of taking a big law job you're going to make a lot less money. That being said, you know, three to five years in when you've kind of like dialed it in, you've got your systems working, you've started to hire some people, you're going to be in a much better position than someone who does a few years in big law, hates it, quits, and then has to figure out what to do with the rest of their life. I I think a lot of it depends on people's personalities, people's skill sets, you know, how comfortable they are with risk, all of these sort of things. But I think it's a useful thing just to have in the back of your mind. I mean, I think more than half of attorneys are actually solo or like very small firms. So it's not like it's this crazy thing. And, you know, I think people can sort of plan towards that even in law school. You know, are you taking classes that are practical, but also in that first job? 
you know, are you positioning yourself? Are you learning the things you need to learn? Are you making the connections that would be useful if you decide to go out on your own? And are you educating yourself about things like using the internet or, you know, how to use all sorts of different things? Or like managing people, another one lawyers know nothing about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> let's uh, let's kind of wrap it up with, I want to talk about this article you wrote because I think that this article is really interesting for um, LSAT students and it makes me think about my current class and everything else. But can you just tell me the basic thesis of this uh, article? Are you? It's, it's called, Are You Willing to Look Stupid to Learn? Yeah, I'm assuming this, I think I probably wrote this when I was like in Mexico and thinking about learning Spanish. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing, there's some, this all kind of goes back to this idea of mindset by uh, Carol Dwick, which is a great book if you're not familiar with it. But basically this idea, like, do you have a growth mindset or do you have a fixed mindset? And a fixed mindset is things like, I'm a smart person, you know, things like that. So you can imagine if you think, if you've been told all of your life, like, you're so smart, you know, you're top of best and the brightest, you know, you're so smart, you never have to do anything, you're, you're just brilliant. And then you get to somewhere like law school or like taking the LSAT and suddenly like stuff is hard because it's legitimately a hard test or law school is like a difficult pedagogy. And so at that point, people who are like, oh, maybe I'm not as smart as I think I am. That's not you can kind of see where that's going to lead. It's like, well, I'm not going to try hard because people who are smart don't really have to try. And that's a, you know, that's a fallacy because smart people still have to work hard if they're going to do well at things that get harder and harder. And so there's this idea of like, you know, if you're taking the LSAT, for example, you have to admit that you don't know how to do this. You know, you take the games, for example, and you fall flat on your face and, you know, do you raise your hand and ask a question or do you pretend that you did better than you actually did? Yeah. You talked in the article about um, when you're reviewing people's, I guess, practice essays for law school or practice essays for the bar exam. And you mentioned that people were telling you, well, I couldn't finish in time. So I gave myself a few more minutes. Yeah, we get that a lot from the bar students. Um, I mean, obviously, the bar exam is a time test, (laughs) as is the LSAT. And they're not going to give you extra time. So it's this idea of like, well, if you're basically cheating, who are you cheating? You're only cheating yourself. It's not like this is going to help you in the long run. Like, just go ahead and be like, oh, I couldn't finish it. How did I do anyway? And then we can talk about strategies to help you do faster, you know, to write faster or to do, well, I know from your podcast, you don't actually think you should try to hurry, but, you know, make, to make that point, like you don't have to finish to do well on the LSAT. And, but the, the, so the point in the article was like, you need to be realistic and you need to be able to just make the mistake or just, just, you need to be able to say, well, this is what I was able to do. Oh, yeah, we have this fascinating situation um, with our start, start law school right students because some of them initially, when we gave them the assignments, you know, like here's your webpage with your assignment, you're gonna whatever, like you know, make an outline or you're gonna do an exam answer. We also gave them the answer because we thought, like, well, who would look at the answer before they did this? It's not graded, you know, they're paying us to help them get ready, we're not offering any judgment. And people would literally copy the answer, <laughs> so we had to take it off. <laughs> they would copy it and send it back to you. Yes, for feedback. For feedback. <laughs> and you, so that you could be like, oh, wow, this is perfect. No, wow. that's what they wanted. It's like, oh, you did really well. And the tutors are like, they just copied it. <laughs> you know, this doesn't help them. What are they doing? Wow. Yeah, so wow. It's stuff like that where, you know, one of our tutors wrote an interesting article recently about law students in this age of sort of unattainable perfection. So, you know, everyone's life is so perfect on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. And, you know, people feel... 
this pressure to like be the perfect law student and to look like they're achieving at all times. And that's just not realistic. And that's not how you learn. You know, you have to be able to really get into the nitty gritty and be like, I don't understand this. I need help. Who can help me with this? Like, oh, maybe Nathan can help me, (laughs) whatever it is. But you have to get to that point of admitting you don't know what you're doing, which is the only way to move forward. And people are so reluctant to do that. Talk about learning Spanish and how you have to basically look stupid in order to learn Spanish. Well, I mean, I'm a horrible example because I, of course, like want to be perfect at all times. And it's actually, it's funny because I have a Spanish boyfriend, a Mexican boyfriend, and his English is perfect. And so he basically sometimes tries to force me to talk in Spanish. I was talking to him the other day. He's like, well, you know, I can't like, can't talk to you about the past because I'm not sure which of the tenses I should use. And Spanish has two different past tenses, depending on what you're trying to say. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, you know, the difference between like fue and era and blah, blah, blah. And he's just like, no one cares about any of that in real life. Like you could say either one and I would understand what you're saying. Like, yeah, one might be more correct. And I was like, no, I have to get it right. He's like, this is why you can't speak Spanish. Like your tutor is convinced you that you have to be, get this perfect, but basically you just have to start talking. <laughs> That's really interesting. Cause I've tried a couple times to learn Spanish and essentially given up on it recently because I just feel like a complete idiot. Yeah. Which is not a pleasant feeling no. for people who are teachers. <laughs> no, I hate it. I hate it. I like being smart. <laughs> I'm used to being smart. Yeah. We yeah. all hate it. <laughs> exactly. We all like being smart and it's painful when you can't, like yeah, order yeah. tea and, or like and I think that really is the one thing that kept me from learning Spanish is that I would just not I would just not go speak Spanish yeah. with Spanish speakers. No, exactly. It's like no, I have to be better. And we get this all the time like I can't take practice exams because I don't know enough. Yeah, well I get that on the LSAT a lot. You know, I, I can't oh, I can't take a timed section of a real test because I'm not there. You know, I, I haven't yeah, learned not there yet. yet. No, it's the same thing. It's like, yeah, no, exactly. It's like my, my Spanish only really started improving when I had, I mean, and now it's terrible again, but at the time it was getting better because I had like several weekly groups of people who were learning Spanish with native speakers and we would go, they would force you to talk to them. That's the key, right? Not speak English. Yeah. And then I had a tutor, you know, that I would see for an hour and a half, three times a week who only spoke in Spanish. Right. And then it was like, oh, this is actually not impossible. Um, and I was still, I was bad. I would like then go and, you know, work in English all day, which is, you know, but at least like you're doing part of the day in Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. And so you just have to, yeah, that's unfortunate, but you just have to be willing to look dumb and you just have to make those mistakes. So and it's you pain- get better. painful. I mean, you know, everybody has their story about law school where they said something stupid in class and it's not fun. Like I can still remember I said something so stupid, you know, and I didn't want to say anything for the next several weeks. <laughs> but I mean, literally, like, I remember the shame of, like, you know, this was so humiliating. Of course, no one else remembers it. No, you're the only person (laughs) that remembers that. I mean, I don't remember anything stupid that anyone said. Exactly, except you, maybe. Well, Um, I just didn't speak, but. Right. But, you know, so, you know, I think you have to really be active about kind of talking yourself out of this and being like, look, I would rather make that mistake now than when it matters on a test. Like, yeah, that was unpleasant, but no one else was paying attention. No one else remembers it. And I'm the only one who's like having this shameful reaction because I said something that wasn't right in a class where I'm supposed to be learning something. Yeah. In in class, in my LSAT classes, I mean, you'll see people ask questions that are sometimes, you know, they might be perceived as being behind the class. But you ask the question, then you realize, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Now you understand it. And now you're caught up with the class. 
Right. And then sometimes people actually like ask stuff and you're like, wow, that's strangely profound. Yeah. (laughs) Like that seems stupid, but actually it's not. And if you don't, if you don't ask, then we never even realize that we have this issue and we never, you know, uncover it and figure it out and move on. Well, I think a lot of it's just like, you know, if you can get clarity on what you don't know, that's the first step in actually learning something. Allison Monahan, thank you very much for coming on the show. Where can people find you or reach you if they want to learn more? Oh, well, probably the best place is you can go to lawschooltoolbox.com and we have a contact form that goes to both me and Lee if you have questions. If you want to reach me more directly, Allison at thegirlsguidetolawschool.com or I think that has a contact form too. And you can find the podcast there and... Yeah, the podcast is on both of the sites. If you add podcast to the end, um, you can go on iTunes. It's called the Law School Toolbox Podcast. Uh, We'd love for you to take a listen and send us any feedback that you've got. Awesome. Uh, Any preview for any new projects that have not yet been announced? I mean, I know you must be launching two or three different things in the next year. Well, actually, a couple of years ago at our offsite retreat, Lee was like, I think our goal for the year should be not to launch any new websites. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Basically, that's kind of what we've stuck with is, in fact, let's just get rid of some of them. So, yeah, we don't have any uh, really exciting news to launch other than we're just really revamping, particularly our sort of pre-law, start law school, write stuff. I think this free series is really interesting and exciting. We've got a private Facebook group. Um, There's a live Q&A every month and some pre-recorded content that people can access. So that's pretty cool. Awesome. Um, Beers soon? Yeah, totally. Why not? Okay, awesome. Uh, Well, send me a text and we'll talk about it. All right. Thanks, Nathan. This has been interesting. I hope your audience uh, enjoys it and good luck on the LSAT. Thanks, Nathan. Take care.